0: Two, three. Just give me yeah. Hey everyone, Dr. Z. Welcome to the Z Dog MD show. Today I'm doing something incredibly self indulgent that I hope you will love as well. We're diving into the philosophy of reality. What is reality? And my guest today is Dr. Bernardo Kastrup. Uh, He's a little bit of a gunner, as we say in medicine. He has two PhDs. One is in computer science uh, and is specializing in artificial intelligence and reconfigurable uh, systems and things like that. The second is in philosophy of mind. And it turns out Bernardo's written a bunch of books. One of them is called Why Materialism is Baloney, which is probably the greatest title of all time. And we're gonna dive in why he thinks and I tend to agree, but he's going to I'm going to challenge him a little bit, why he thinks that our entire paradigm of reality is wrong and why that matters, not just for healthcare, but for everything. Bernardo, welcome to the show, brother. Great pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to this. So you're in the Netherlands right now, right? Yeah, south of the country, yeah. And uh, you guys are having a bit of a third surge, I understand. Your
1: ICUs are filling up? That's right. We are still in a lockdown and under curfew after 9 p.m. Stringent measures here. I'm not sure we will have a a holiday summer this year again. We'll see. Uh, Well, are you you guys still um, slow in getting the vaccines uh, spun up? Very slow. Uh, Mm -hmm. There is no no, uh, prediction about when people my age uh, will get a vaccine. Right now, they're just vaccinating people at very high risk uh, and older people. So I don't know when my turn will come, we'll see. Well, I hope it comes soon
0: because I think that's our way out of this mess, um, as you know, but, uh, so le- okay, let's dive into this because I think I I have been following your work and I'm fascinated by it and I've been interested in consciousness ever since I was very young when I sort of looked at the world and thought something's not right. Uh, I really fascinated by science, really interested in medicine and in people and in relationships, but something always felt a little wrong in our paradigm because even though I didn't, you know, classically believe in God or anything like that, religion didn't quite feel right for me, but neither did the materialist paradigm meaning there's stuff as the fundamental truth of reality, there's matter and atoms, and somehow awareness and love and the the taste of chocolate and a headache and the bitterness of disappointment arise from dead matter and the universe at one point had no awareness, it never felt right. And recently I've been more and more disabused of this notion. So help me understand, first of all, how you got interested in this and then walk us through the materialist paradigm. In other words, our dominant um, scientific and cultural worldview right now and then we'll talk about why it may be wrong.
1: Well, I think I was born sort of a philosopher, because since I was a kid, I liked to ask the the big questions. Uh, My father died when I was 12, which sort of propelled that that tendency that was already latent in me forward, big time, you know, asking the big questions. Um, But that journey was interrupted by, you know, university. I went to university, had just uh, turned 17. And then you're busy, you know, discovering the world and creating a space in the world for yourself, you know, how that goes. Mm. Um, so this question sort of went to the background until at some point i started working a lot even in my personal life as a hobby with uh, artificial intelligence and then you come across the question you know if you can build an intelligent machine um, do you have any reason to believe that that machine will also be conscious Mm. that it would not only perform calculations but that, that there would be something it is like to perform those calculations and then i came back to the old philosophical questions that I always uh, asked myself. And when I looked more deeply into those questions, I realized that uh, although materialism seems to be very intuitive at a superficial level, when you scratch the surface only a little bit, you don't need to go deep at all. Just ask the next question uh, in in the chain of questions you can ask. And you quickly realize that uh, it is... um, Rather easy to reduce materialism to absurdity, as we say in philosophy, which is to disprove it. Um, It seems intuitive because it tells us that there is an objective world out there, independent of our individual minds. Now, I agree with that. Of course, there is a world out there that doesn't care about whether I think it's nice or not. Because if it did, it would be different (laughs) right now. I would have already imagined it to be something other than what it is. For starters, there would be no COVID pandemic if I could change the world by a mere act of volition. So there is an objective world out there. But materialism goes one step further and it says, and that objective world is fundamentally distinct from mentation, from mind stuff. And by the way, mind stuff somehow is created or generated by specific configurations of that other kind of stuff that we call matter, even though nobody in the history of philosophy or science has had any clue about how this miracle of the creation of consciousness from something non-conscious is actually performed. And um, and then if you go even a little bit deeper than that, you realize that what most of us understand as materialism is not materialism at all, most of us think that uh, you know, the colors of the world are really out there. The flavors are really out there. Uh, the melodies are really out there. But materialism will tell you that none of this is true. Uh, color as a quality is something mental that is created by your brain inside your skull. And so is melody, and so is flavor, and so is aroma. The real world out there has no colors. You can't visualize it, because if you visualize it, you're bringing mind into the picture. And according to materialism, that world has nothing to do with mind. Um, So it's a pure abstraction that I think most people would intuitively reject if they actually understood what materialism was. So I think what's interesting here is you're describing a dualism. You're saying... To, to
0: this degree, you're saying that we have our mind stuff, which is the materialists would say is created by dead atoms and material that configure themselves in some mysterious way that somehow emerge our internal subjective world. And that the real world out there according to materialists is, is something that has no qualities like that because we create the qualities in our mind. And so, our current worldview is this. It's saying there's a world out there that's dead, that is just stuff and energy and vibrating fields and things like that. We turn it in through our own dead vibrating fields in somehow magically into the look of a red apple with a glistening water on it, because you've just washed it. And that, okay, that's the dominant paradigm. That's what we think right now, correct? That's correct, yeah. Now, now yeah. when did we start thinking this way? Because I think it helps people understand how mankind has come to this conclusion in violation of what the intuition might be, which is, oh, if there's a green leaf, then that leaf, that green is the real thing. The, the, what I might
1: experience is the real thing. Yeah, not according to materialism. According to materialism, the world of your experience is entirely within your head. So there is a literal sense in which, according to materialism, the inner surface of your skull is beyond the walls of the room you see around you. Because the walls, as you see them, are qualitative, and therefore they are mental, and therefore they are somehow created by your brain inside your skull, and your real skull is beyond the walls, beyond the ceiling of the room you're in. This is what materialism actually says. Now, how, where, where did it start, which was your question? Um some would claim it goes back to Democritus, uh, over two and a half, yeah, to, over two thousand years ago, uh, because you know th- that was the birth of atomism, the idea that you can divide things into ever smaller pieces until you get to something that cannot be divided anymore. Now I don't think that is accurate. Uh, I don't think this dichotomy, mind and non-mind, was present in those times. It's much, much more accurate, I think, in the Western world at least. To go back to Descartes and the great partition of the world between mind, which was left for the church, so scientists wouldn't be burned at the stake, so they would leave something for the church, that the church themselves considered to be all that matters, mind, psyche, soul. You know, mind and soul are two translations of the same Greek word, psyche. Ah. So Descartes left the psyche for the church and he invented this other thing called matter, which was supposed to be totally distinct from the psyche, from the soul, from mind. Uh, and that was what scientists would then do. And, and this sort of carving out of the political space allowed scientists to not be burned at the stake, which was a very good thing at the time. Um, but it sort of snowballed. It, it grew beyond proportion. It, it became something that is, uh, on the face of it, uh, absurd. And it became the dominant paradigm in the Western world in the second half of the 19th century or so. And what may have propelled it, there are many different opinions about it, but what may have propelled it is that at some point, scientists began to reject anything that could smell of putting human beings in the center of the universe. Because they've tried to do this before and they, they got disappointed multiple times. They fell flat on their faces. And something in the collective psyche of scientists said, we are never going to make that mistake again. We are nothing. Humanity is nothing. We are irrelevant in this immense universe that is not even of the same nature that we are. Clearly, we are mental beings, and this universe is not even mental. And uh, so this, this sort of prejudice uh, um, became uh, mainstream in the late 19th century, and it has been mainstream ever since, although... Since the turn of the twenty-first century, science itself is beginning to, I think, irremediably weaken this because it just doesn't stand up to reason or thorough empirical investigation.
0: This is really fascinating because the origin of this—let's assume that you're what you're going to say is correct. This delusion, this idea that we are—we that that we are separate from the universe and we're made of. You know, we're, mental stuff is different than physical stuff and physical stuff is primal. And we're just a rounding error on a dead, impersonal universe. We're not, nothing near the center and certainly completely expendable. And, it, and it's a very borderline nihilistic view. Why, what, what's the meaning, what's the purpose? But that became mainstream for the reasons that you say. Now, and then you mention, which is a perfect segue to this, in the 21st century, science itself is going, but wait, materialism has some problems so maybe tell me what are the what are the posits of materialism that you think are compelling as a case and then where are the holes emerging scientifically in the case that the universe is dead stuff that emerges consciousness
1: well i think materialism materialism has played a role in the early days of science because it sort of isolated the investigator from the investigated and it led to a sort of built-in objectivity in the scientific process because of the assumptions that were made from the get-go. Um, but at some point, it became just a way for the the tough people to distinguish themselves from the wishful thinkers, from the gullible populace who wanted good news, while the scientists were the tough guys who stared the facts in the face. And And there is some no ego building around that notion. Um, today, uh, materialism is—I would argue—it's untenable unless you adopt absurd hypotheses about what's going on. I can mention them. Um, one of the key tenets of materialism is that objects have standalone existence. So whether you are looking at an object, perceiving it or not, measuring it or not, that object object exists and has its properties. So it has a certain mass, a certain size, uh, it's moving in a certain direction, regardless of whether anybody's measuring it or not. And what the latest experimental results in quantum mechanics are telling us is that this is a false assumption. Um, What quantum mechanics calls observables, things that can be measured, such as weight, mass, charge, momentum, speed, frequency, amplitude, all these things only come into existence uh, by virtue of the act of measurement. They only exist when they are measured. Before they are measured, they are just potentials. Um, The best you can say uh, is to abstract whatever there is out there when nobody is measuring, to abstract it and say, well, it's a wave of probabilities or something like that. And smart experiments have shown us that before measurement, the things you measure don't really exist. They cannot exist. They are not defined before measurement. And, well, if matter, as we understand it, is not there until a mind sort of apprehends its properties, then it, materialism cannot be right unless, and this is the way out that uh, that many scientists are peddling, unless you grant that there are gazillions, countless new material universes popping into existence every fraction of a femtosecond, and for which we have precisely zero empirical evidence. So either you choose that, or you admit that, okay, what we call matter is not a standalone reality. It is a representation. It is an image of something else deeper, something that is really out there, that's not part of my mind or your mind or my cat's mind. It's something that is really out there, but it isn't material. It is likely mental, because mentality is all we know for sure. It's what, what nature grants us as a given of existence. So matter may be just a sort of a superficial appearance of a deeper, transpersonal, extended mentality that isn't your mind, isn't my mind, but it is mental in nature.
0: And, and Okay, so we're going to dive into all the things you just said in more detail, but I think going back to this idea that physicalism materialism has a huge problem, which is quantum mechanics. And the idea that uh, experiment after experiment very, like you said, very clever experiments imply that time is not maybe what we think, that space maybe isn't even what we think, and that things don't seem to settle into a real position, spin, whatever it is until they are apprehended or measured, and they all try to squirrel out of that and say, "Well, no, it's it's really a measurement issue. It, it, it you know it's a question of or there's multiple universes, like you said, where so we can explain that because everything that could have happened actually happened in some universe, which again we have no evidence for. Uh, so you're making these very complex theories out of something that could be solved quite parsimoniously and simply by saying, well, maybe then there isn't matter because we've never found matter. The more we look, the more weird stuff we find. It's kind of like looking at your computer screen and going, oh, the image of Bernardo there, he's got cool glasses, he's in a cool room with a lot of books. He used to work for CERN, which is the the European sort of big physics thing. He, he's worked in quantum mechanics, he's worked in computer science, so he's kind of been in this world. But then I look at that computer and I go, what is Bernardo? Let me look closer. I look closer and I see a colored pixel vibrating and I go, well, he's made of colored pixels that vibrate. I look even closer, oh, there's little, even smaller pixels in there and then I get to the limit of my instrument's ability to look and I assume that everything is made out of those colored pixels whereas in reality, you exist in a space and a time completely different than my ability to apprehend it based on my interface with reality. Is it something like that that's
1: going on here? It's precisely like that. I, precisely like that. I think you just nailed it. Uh, we got used to think of images as the thing in itself. Um, although Kant already warned us 250 years ago, more or less, and Schopenhauer after him, 200 years ago, they already warned us that um, um, the phenomena, you know, what appears on the screen of our perception, whether it's aided by instrumentation or not, the things we call matter, extended matter in space and time, these are representations. These are how the world as it is in itself presents itself to us upon being observed. And of course, these representations are not there if you're not looking, <laughs> because the world as it is in itself is not the representation. It is the thing that projects the representation. And it is the only thing that has standalone existence. So matter is representation, is the image an appearance. Uh, and appearance. The, and the, the, the more we zoom into matter, the more we realize that it's just pixels, There is nothing else that has standalone existence there. Actually, if you look close enough, even the pixels disappear, and then you start having to talk in terms of pure abstraction, like quantum fields, which are just mathematical tools we have no reason to think of quantum fields uh, as existent, if you know what i mean yeah. um, and it's not only physics it's you know, neuroscience of consciousness is, is hitting some walls that outright contradict materialism and people are desperate to find a way out of it, out of it just like physicists have been desperate to find a way out of these contradictions uh, from quantum physics and ph- analytic philosophy itself shows that you know even if you don't look at the empirical data, uh, even even if you just reason things out with discipline, applying logic consistently, you are probably not going to choose materialism because it leads to insoluble problems like the hard problem of consciousness. There are better options on the table.
0: And and, and I'm glad you brought up hard problem of consciousness because to me, this was the th- the thorn in my mind, as Morpheus said, that... That is constantly digging there. I mean, I consider The Matrix a documentary. <laughs> so it was this discomfort like, how is it that these three pounds of wet goo are generating my rich inner life, my imagination, my appreciation for music and. Comedy and whatever it is that I'm into, how on earth? Yes, the the brain is the most complex entity that we know of in the known universe. It has more connections between synapses than you know, the stars in the universe or whatever it is. It, it's mysterious in many ways and very simple in others. We can cut it open, we can measure it, we can measure ion gates, we can measure EEG, we have fMRI, we can look at, at correlations between my internal experience and what lights up in parts of the brain. And we can do all of that and yet are nowhere even close to understanding how that generates a headache, the sensation of a headache. I mean, it's, to me, and this got me so crazy, I was like, there's gotta be a way. And the thing is, you can go in college, and I'm just gonna rant for a second. In college, maybe you do some LSD or do some psilocybin, and you have these experiences where you rev- what is shown to you a feels like revealed truth. You go, oh, wait a minute. There, this is all one consciousness, what? And you feel that, and then you bring it back when you sober up and run it through the materialist paradigm you were taught. And you go, well, boy, isn't that crazy when you mess with the gates and your ion channels and how it messes with your experience? And it never felt right, but yet that's the best we could do.
1: And you know, the 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 interesting thing that we've discovered since 2012 and now has been repeated multiple times over. So this is established fact now. Is that psychedelics only reduce brain activity? They do not increase brain activity anywhere. So, as you are having the richest and most intense experience of your life, your brain is effectively going to sleep. And the uh, materialist neuroscientists neuroscien- are scrambling now to find any even seemingly absurd hypothesis to try to make sense of this. So, they're talking now about the anthropic brain. So uh, uh, the, the hypothesis is that the level of entropy, the, the level of disorganization in your brain may explain the richer and intenser experience, even though statistically that increase in disorganization is minimal. And no tripper who has had a psychedelic trip uh, would accept that um, the coherence of the trip is somehow created by an increasing noise. A, a trip is not noisy. I mean, it's noisy in the sense that you cannot extract hard conclusions about what's going on. Um, but it's not noisy in the sense that it's not incoherent. It's not white noise. Those are very coherent experiences. So, yeah, there's a desperate hunt for uh, a way out for materialism. Um, but uh, I, I think the The results of that desperate hunt, if anything, they make materialism look absolutely silly because the hypotheses that are being proposed are ridiculous. Look, none of this is to deny fact. And it is a fact that if a neurosurgeon cracks my skull open and start start poking around my brain with an electrical probe, he will induce experiences in me. Obviously, there are very tight correlations between brain activity and inner experience. But correlation doesn't imply a specific direction of causation. Um, If the brain is just what my conscious inner life looks like when observed from the outside, if the brain is a representation, an image, of course, the image will correlate with the phenomenon that that it is an image of, (laughs) because it's the image of that phenomenon. And of course, you know, if you're consistent in your worldview and you are an idealist, and you think everything is fundamentally mental, not in your mind alone, not in my mind alone, but fundamentally mental, then that surgeon with an electric probe poking around your brain, that, too, is the appearance, the image of a mental process, and it is that mental process beyond the boundaries of your individual self that interfere with your own mental inner life. And that one mental process interferes with another is trivial. It happens every day. My thoughts affect my emotions and the other way around. <laughs>
0: uh so, all right, basically what, what we're doing is, is, let's use Don Hoffman's uh, metaphor, which is what we see is like a desktop interface, like a graphical user interface, and brain is an icon. So brain is an icon on your desktop. You take your icons seriously because they point to something. They point to, in this case, a rich inner life, a a discrete experience viewpoint. Um, And so you can mess with that icon and things will happen to the rich inner experience, but you don't take the icon literally. You don't go, that's a brain. And it's the same when the neurosurgeon, who is another icon, who's exchanging experience with your icon of brain, things change and they correlate quite directly because just as a just as the trash icon on your desktop correlates directly to your ability to delete files permanently, uh, the brain icon correlates directly to your discrete conscious field of experience, and you can mess with it in probably predictable ways. And so much of neuroscience, as a doctor, I'll tell you, so much of neuroscience is trying to establish the easy problem of consciousness. What are the correlates? And completely sweeps under the rug the hard problem, which is why are we, wait, how can stuff lead to this? And medicine even reduces it further and go, you're either conscious or you're not. And, you know, we, Question: Vegetative states and what's going on in that, and I, I think we're we're even anesthesia. Like, are we aware during anesthesia? All these questions arise from a materialist standpoint. They become intractable and very simplified and and dangerously wrong. In 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 that we're now we potentially induce suffering in living creatures. We reduce mental illness to gates and serotonin to the correlates instead of what's the fundamental root experience that's going on, and and so. So I'll let you I'll let you comment on that and then I want to start to explore okay if if physicalism has failed what's your proposal that replaces it
1: Yeah um look I have compassion for sincere materialists um because it is not easy to evaluate the situation objectively once you have grown up in in a, in a, in, a, in an ecosystem in a culture in a society that uh, peddles materialism to you from the get-go, from the time you learn language. Um, so it's very difficult to think and evaluate things in neutral terms. You're always embedding uh, hidden materialist assumptions in your process of thinking. And therefore, materialism becomes sort of a, a self-fulfilling promise. I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, uh A materialist will say that uh, for an idealist, somebody who thinks everything is mental, that they think the whole world is in their heads. Well... No, it's precisely the opposite. It's materialism that says that the world you experience is entirely inside your head because it's generated by your brain. And what is really out there you have no direct access to. An idealist would say precisely the opposite. An idealist would say your head is in mind because your head is that thing that is perceived. And if it is perceived, it's in mind. Therefore, your mind is not in your head. It's the other way around. But a materialist will Poo-poo an idealist by projecting materialism, the absurdity of materialism, onto that other hypothesis. And people do that very easily. Sincere, intelligent people do that very easily. Or they project dualism. Like um, they say, well, of course, matter precedes mind. Because if I go cutting around your brain, I will alter your inner life. Well, we don't even need to go that far. Drink beer, and <laughs> something will alter your inner life because you ingest the substance. And, but they are thinking in dualistic terms. They are thinking of matter and mind as separate. Therefore, the material process causally influences the mind. But they forget that when you say that everything is mental, then the beer and the scalpel are also the images of mental processes. There is nothing physical in an ontological sense. And look, as, as I say all this, I'm not denying that thing we call matter. That thing we call matter is obviously out there. I can hold a bottle of water right now, and it feels very solid. But the color, the solidity, the feel of it in my hands are mental things. They are qualitative uh, things. So we are denying the interpretation of what we call matter. We are not denying that which we call matter. So, okay, this this is very important. We
0: need to dive into something that you said which is a lot of materialists will and again i think they're they're like you said they're well meaning and they're actually conditioned that way and i i was in that camp for many years but unhappily and uh, i i would even go further and say they're ego defended so in other words so much of personal identity and reality is uh, invested in this idea that we're stuff that emerges reality that if you if you if you challenge that idea not only do they shut down, they become violently opposed to the idea. And I've had people scream at me for my interview with Don Hoffman, which they found very destabilizing because he's basically saying a version of what you're saying. The other thing I wanna say about that is they'll then accuse the proposer of the theory of either being a new age woo woo uh, uh, cuckoo, or they'll say you're a solipsist, meaning what you're saying, you think you create the universe, that you can manipulate the universe, and that it's only you and everybody else
1: is an illusion. That is not what you're saying, and it's not what I'm saying, right? Absolutely correct. Nobody's denying that there is something out there beyond my personal mind. What we deny is the need to postulate something other than mentality, to explain whatever is out there for, so I have a metaphor uh, to make sense of this suppose that you're you're standing on the earth and you're looking to the horizon and because of the curvature of the earth of the earth there is only so far you can see because you know the rest goes below the horizon so you can't see the rest so you can only infer the rest an idealist would say up until the horizon what i can see directly what i can experience and become acquainted directly with it's all mentality. It's all I have. It's my mind. It's my conscious experiences. Whatever is not within the sphere of my conscious experiences, I, it is only a hypothesis. It's it, it's it's um, an inference. So up until the horizon, it's mental. Now, if I have to grant that there is something beyond the horizon to make sense of the fact that we all seem to share the same world and to acknowledge that other people also have their own minds, so I have to postulate or infer something beyond the horizon. An idealist would say, well, if up until the horizon it's mental, then beyond the horizon we infer that whatever is out there is also mental. A materialist, materialist would say up until the horizon is mental, but beyond the horizon is something totally else, completely abstract, called uh, matter, and by the way, in ways I cannot begin to explain, that abstract thing also creates the mentality that goes until the horizon. I don't think this is the most reasonable, conceptually parsimonious way to go about things.
0: It's not, it violates Occam's razor, which is a lot of times the simplest solution is correct. Doesn't not, There's no reason the universe has to be simple. There's no reason it has to be parsimonious to be correct. But materialism introduces dual, dualism and introduces these contradictions it it Fails to solve and by by generating the hard problem of consciousness. Actually, it's not absolutely right. It generates that. It's not like this is an extant problem in the world. Like how do we ge- how do we generate consciousness from brain? No, materialists have a theory that then generates
1: the problem. Like how? Well, then absolutely. why are we awake? <laughs> the hard problem of consciousness is the absurd implication of the materialist hypothesis. If I if I can formulate it accurately, I would say there is nothing about material or physical parameters in terms of which we could deduce any of the qualities of experience. There is nothing about a particular pattern of brain activity in terms of which I could deduce how it feels like to have a bellyache or to fall in love or to taste a strawberry. Um, We know that there are empirical correlations and we can catalogue the correlations, but there is nothing in principle about physicality in terms of which you can deduce mentality. So you are left with an impassable gap Um, now under any other circumstances that would just be the point when you say this hypothesis has no future let's backtrack we took a wrong turn somewhere in our line of thinking because it has been reduced to an absurdity now Uh, let's try something else but because we are culturally so committed to it instead of acknowledging the absurd implication, we label it a problem and we say, one day we might solve it. Well, <laughs> good luck with that. Pull a chair while you're waiting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so before, and okay, so basically in your, and we're gonna get into your theory in detail, but I, I, wanna, I wanna dwell a little bit more on the absurdity of the current paradigm because I want people to start to instinctually feel the same discomfort that we feel with with, the absurdity of materialism. And again, because people are resistant to this, I think building that case first before you go, now here's a different idea of what reality might be. And it isn't solipsism. It isn't saying that it's just my mind and nobody else's mind. Your proposal is different. It's 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 very remarkable actually. And I think people are gonna wanna hear it. But it seems to me like physics and science, whether it's astrophysics, et cetera, we're pushing, so for the last three, 400 years, we've really nailed it. I mean, we quantum mechanics allowed us to make the electronics that we're communicating with. Um, uh, medicine has advanced dramatically, mostly through vaccines and public health. The rest of it's mostly garbage, except for some surgical stuff. I firmly believe most of what we do doesn't work, um, but it has a mental component to it, which we'll talk about. <laughs> it implies a, a therapeutic alliance and a healing effect and a placebo effect that we discount in our materialist paradigm, and yet is probably the majority of healing for for a lot of people, but all this stuff has worked to the degree that it's worked. But now we start to run into some problems. Quantum mechanics, like the more we look down with our large hadron collider, and we find the Higgs boson and 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 this and that, and then more contradictions appear. Well, why doesn't it? Why isn't it reconcilable with? relativity and, and, and how come when we keep looking down then we propose strings which are more abstractions <laughs> that are mathematical abstractions. We seem to be running up against a wall, particularly in physics, where things really haven't advanced in a while. Is that because we're hitting the pixel density
1: of our interface rather than actually looking at reality? I think in, when you talk about foundations of physics, I think we are most definitely reaching the, the 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 resolution of the interface itself. So if you look closer, you only see bigger pixels or, or things would disappear altogether because you start looking in between the pixels. Um, look, science is the study of nature's behavior, not of what nature is. So it, it is a misunderstanding to attribute scientific and technological development to materialism. Materialism is just a way of thinking about that behavior, but what empirical experimentation gives you is information about the behavior, not about the nature of the thing that behaves. And this is a very important distinction because it it, it, it bears on the scientific method itself. What kind of... What questions can it answer fundamentally? And the scientific method is based on experimentation, and what experiments tell you is how nature behaves, how nature reacts to an initial set of circumstances and an action imprinted on nature. So fundamentally, it only tells you how nature behaves. But that's enough for you to develop technology. If you have behavioral models of nature, predictive models, and you know how nature will respond if you do this and that, that's... All you need to create mobile phones and medicine and cars and spaceships. It is irrelevant what nature essentially is. That's why isness or being um, is the subject of metaphysics and metaphysics means literally the study of what is only in the popular culture it has come to mean uh, some spiritual woo-woo well that's not what the word actually means technically metaphysics the study of being science is the study of behavior Uh, i can explain this with a metaphor imagine i don't know whether you have kids but imagine Mm -hmm. a seven-year-old kid playing a computer game uh, the kid will inventorize the behavior of that game. He, he, he or she will know exactly what the game would do if he or she acts in this or that way. So much so that kid can become the world champion in that computer game. The kid understands the behavior of that game and has turned it into an art, a fine art. He knows exactly what to do to get the results he wants to get. But to do that, he doesn't need to understand the first thing about what the game actually is. All the software, all the hardware, the processors, the memory, the bus conflicts, all that stuff is irrelevant for the kid to learn the game and win, because it's all about behavior. Uh, Science, and I don't want to put science down, I mean, science is the major thing in my life. Um, Me too. But I think it's healthy for scientists to recognize what the scientific method, method can tell you and what it cannot. So you can do good science instead of bad philosophy. And what science does is to learn how to play the game. It does not settle questions of being, even though it can inform questions of being. It can take some alternatives off the table, like arguably quantum mechanics is doing now. It's taking materialism off the table, but it doesn't tell you what is. It can only tell you what cannot be because of some contradictions. So basically science in our current worldview, in our
0: estimation when we talk about your theory, is the behavior of the interface we're able to perceive with whatever underlying reality there is. So the metaphysics metaphysics of isness, of being, of awakeness, of awareness, whatever we want to call it, um, th- that's that's one thing, but we can still play the video game of life and win by manipulating icons in this thing. Like our child would play Grand Theft Auto or mine play, mine, my kids play Crossy Castle. They're Like you said, they're really good at it, but they don't have the first clue about the quantum mechanics involved that generated the microprocessor. By the way, I'm having Federico Fagin on the show um, in a in a in a couple of weeks, and he's going to talk about this stuff too. But uh, he could kind of father of the microprocessor, and the the idea that that's science, and it's important, and nothing that we are going to say now, moving forward, impacts that in a way that lessens its brilliance uh, or the fact that it's crucially important. What it what it will do is add a deeper layer of truth. To what science is, and that will empower it for the next phase of our understanding. That that's the
1: way I Absolutely. like. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, uh, uh,
0: yeah, yeah. So I mean, so tell. So now, okay. It's not this stuff. This is just icon. It's all mental. That makes no sense to me. What do you mean? What's the universe made of? And what's it doing? And how come I can't access your conscious? You know, there's a million questions here. So hit hit,
1: hit me up with your idealism theory. Okay, okay. Um, let's start easy with a with a thought experiment. Imagine that you're very sad, even despairing, and a feeling we all are well acquainted with, I believe. If you aren't, you haven't lived long enough. <laughs> you're going to be. Um, and then we go to the mirror in the bathroom, and, and we see that contorted face, um, that image on the mirror, and tears flowing down the eyes. Do we think that that face contorted the contorted muscles and the tears flowing down the eyes do do we think that that's all the story that that all there is to say about sadness we don't we know that that's just a image a representation of what is actually the thing in itself the sadness we feel from within my contorted face and the tears in my eyes are just what my sadness looks like when it's observed from a certain viewpoint, like in the mirror, or, or when somebody else is looking at me, from within, there are no tears, uh, there are no contorted muscles, from within, there is only the thing in itself, which is the sadness. Now, we all understand this, we understand this distinction between the external representation and the thing in itself, which is the only standalone reality, the thing that projects the external representation. Um, but we forget about it when it comes to the rest of the world. We think that the rocks and, and the moons and the volcanoes, that we think they are the thing in itself. We think that they are the whole story about the external world, which sort of requires a, a um, an arbitrary discontinuity in our story about nature. When it comes to us, we know we have inner life and that... Uh, our body is just on the external appearance of our inner life, uh, a problem we try to solve by saying, well, inner life doesn't actually exist, it's just the material stuff, it's just the image. <laughs> it's an illusion, um, and that's as the Dan, problem. Dennett, as Dan illusion. Dennett would say, right? Yeah, it's just an illusion, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and never mind the fact that an illusion is already a conscious an experience. <laughs> phenomenon. experience! Yeah, right. <laughs> right, right. It's already right. the thing you're trying to deny. Um so we understand that when it comes to us, but our intuition fails us uh, when it comes to the rest of the world. So my point is the following, matter, all matter, including the tears in your eyes and including the galaxies out there, matter is the name we give to the extrinsic appearance of extended mental processes um, that may be out there or maybe within here uh, in us. But either way, matter is how these mental processes look like when observed from a certain perspective. And to be more technical, that perspective means when they are observed from across a dissociative boundary. So for me, there is no arbitrary discontinuity in nature. Matter, all matter, is always what inner looks like when observed from across a dissociative boundary. Uh, and then the question is, okay, where are these dissociative boundaries? We can talk about that as well, but that is in essence what I'm putting forward. We can explain and make sense of everything by sticking to the one sole Uh, given of nature, which is mentation. We know mentation exists. That's that's where it starts from uh, for us. Anything else we come up with is a result of theoretical reflection. The given is mentation. And my point is, we can explain everything in terms of mentation. Not my mentation alone, not your mentation alone. There has to be extended mentation out there. But in all cases, the thing in itself is mentation. And matter is just Representation, the phenomena, or what uh, uh, Don calls uh, the virtual reality headset, we have evolved to gather information about the world surrounding us in the form that we call matter. Because if we would just mirror the states of the external world within ourselves, we would dissolve into an entropic soup. We would not be able to resist the second law of thermodynamics. And this is a theorem that has been proven by a group of neuroscientists, by the way. We have to encode the information we get about the outside world in order to have a sort of at-a-glance view. So instead of feeling bits of what is actually happening in the mentation within which you are enveloped and surrounded, instead of filling those directly by bits and pieces, um, you get a dashboard. (laughs) Evolution has given you a dashboard that conveys the relevant information in a very neat, compact way that provides an overview at a glance, uh, which allows you to maintain your structural and dynamical integrity despite the second law of thermodynamics, and which optimizes your chances of survival matter is that dashboard the problem is we we tend to think about the dashboard as a transparent windscreen now this is what we have to drop there is no transparent windscreen evolution would have never done that we would be driven swiftly to to extinction that's what don has proven and that's what other neuroscientists have shown as well we would would dissolve in an entropic soup there is no reason at all to think that the screen of our perception is a transparent windshield. It is most definitely not. It's a set of dials on a dashboard. So, are those dials the thing in itself, the world as it is in itself? Is a pilot flying in the middle of a storm, flying by instruments, when he looks down to his instrument panel, is what he sees... The storm outside, the real sky, the clouds, and the winds and lightning outside? Of course not. The, the dashboard provides critical, important information to the pilot that allows the pilot to fly safely and land safely. But the dashboard is not the world. When we say that the world is material, we are basically saying, well, the dashboard is the world. Yeah. Good luck trying to prove that, trying to make sense of that. It isn't. And uh, we will make more progress understanding life, the universe and everything, understanding who we are and what the meaning of life is. If we drop this rather, I think today we can say, infantile idea which had a place in history, uh, but we are not there anymore. There is no reason to stick to this infantile idea anymore. We know better today.
0: Hey, sorry to interrupt this episode. It's Dr. Z. Just a quick pitch here. If you can just leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, it helps us a lot. I also want to hear what you think about this episode when you're done listening. Hello at zdogmd.com. It's the best way for me to hear your voice because the emails come right to me. And we don't have a comment section on most podcast platforms. Maybe Spotify has one, but nobody else does. So it really gets your voice involved on episodes, especially that don't have a video. And the third thing is if you want to be a part of this community and support the show, Join our supporter tribe, zdogmdcom forward slash supporters. You can join on YouTube, Locals, Facebook, Instagram. You get live videos with me where we're talking about these things in depth, uncensored, and your comments are fully incorporated as in real time. And then we do these Zoom meetings where it's really like a beautiful community where we share our experiences on the awakening journeyless journey. How are we going to transform ourselves so we can transform healthcare and education and government? Because those systems are epiphenomena of us. Until we wake up, those systems will stay asleep. They'll, they're just an expression of our own delusion. So being a part of that, it supports this message so others can hear it. And it also allows for our own collective growth. So we need each other in that way. It's really, really, really tightly interwoven and interdependent. That's it. Back to your regular schedule, regularly scheduled show. As Don says, we are making a rookie mistake of confusing our interface with the real world, we're making a rookie mistake of confusing the video game with reality. And I'm gonna dig even deeper into what you're saying. When you say everything is mental or mentation, another way to frame that is the universe is nothing fundamentally but mind stuff, consciousness, awareness. That is all that is and it manifests through experiences that as you say are the thing in themselves. So the taste of chocolate is real that's the experience in and of itself and the look of a chocolate bar is the experience that you're having in and of itself but the the bar itself is not reality that in other words there is no physical bar there that 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 you're manipulating and if everything fundamentally is awareness mind stuff in order for it to behave the way we're seeing it in other words and and I want you to correct me when I'm wrong here so it, okay And remember, the spiritualists and mystics have been saying that everything is consciousness forever. But then the questions arise, well, then why is it that I can't read your mind? Why is it that if everything's mind-created, why is there so much consistency in the laws of nature, in the fact that you and I both looking at a car see the same car, the fact that... um, you know, uh, we're so afraid of death, it must mean that our consciousness completely ends. Where are these borders and distinctions? Why is there only one consciousness? All these questions arise, and you actually have thought through all of this, and I- I'd love you to start to respond to the mess that I just threw at you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, it, it, it's curious how in this kind of discussions we become blind to to things that we know. Um, And let me highlight that by just pointing them out to you. Uh, A lot of people who are not idealists would say, well, the world cannot be mental because I cannot control the world at will. I cannot just wish it to be different. But let's remember, you don't control your dreams. You don't control your nightmares. Otherwise, you would not have them. You don't control your obsessions. Otherwise, nobody would be really obese. Um, You don't control your anxieties. Gosh, you don't control your next thought. Where does your next thought come from? And Now, it's amazing how little of our own individual mentation we have under control. It's amazing how little we understand about the internal consistency of our own dreams. Um, So when we say that idealism cannot be right because the world is out of our control, (laughs) it's like, hey... Where are you coming from when you make that statement? So my argument is the following. Um, Since the advent of neuroimaging in the 21st century, uh, we are in a position now to know that a certain phenomenon that has been in the annals of uh, of psychiatry for at least over 100 years, we know that that phenomenon is real. Now we know that. And that phenomenon is dissociation. And there are many levels of dissociation. Uh, some types of forgetfulness can be considered dissociative. Um, but dissociative identity disorder is the big one, is when a person claims to be many. And each of these dissociated personalities called alters, each of these alters sometimes even denies the existence of the other or denies being the other and claims to be a entity in its own right, with its own dispositions, its own memories. Um, and we know that that's not fake. Now we know that because ac- neuroimaging experiments have shown that dissociative processes can be distinguished from controls, uh, you know, measurements made on actors pretending to be dissociated, pretending to themselves to be dissociated, mm. uh, actual dissociation can be distinguished on the basis of neuroimaging. And we know that dissociation is even blinding. There was this case of this woman in Germany, a study published in 2015, a woman who had several alters. And what was peculiar about that woman's DID or dissociative identity disorder is that some of the alters claimed to be blind, even though there was nothing wrong with the woman's eyes and other alters could see perfectly well. So organically, there was nothing wrong with her. And uh, the scientists had a brilliant idea, and the idea was, let's hook her up to an EEG or an MEG, I don't remember what it was, I think it was an EEG, and measure the, the visual cortex uh, activity while the blind altar is in control. And guess what? With the blind alter in control, even though the woman's eyes were wide open and things were happening in front of her, there was no activity in the visual cortex. No, you cannot fake that. And when uh, another alter would assume control, then visual activity would come back in the visual cortex. This was published. Um, So we know that dissociation exists, and it's strong enough to make you blind, literally, even though organically there's nothing wrong with you. Now, here is nature telling us that there is something in nature that does exactly what an idealist needs to happen in order to explain the nature of everything, explain why I can't read your thoughts and presumably you can't read mine. We are dissociated from each other and from the rest of the mental universe within which we are inserted. There is a dissociative boundary between our inner mentation and the mentation that's going on on the other side of that boundary. And and this dissociation has an appearance. There is something it looks like. Just like the dissociative processes in the mind of a DID patient look like something in an fMRI, there is an image that can be used for diagnosis uh, purposes. Um, uh, within the universe, there is something dissociative processes in nature look like, and I would say we call it biology. Biology, life, uh, metabolism, is what dissociation in a sort of you know uh, extended mind. Is what the dissociation there looks like. When that dissociation happens, we say a living being uh, was born. And the boundary of that dissociative process, the dissociative boundary, is our skin, our eyes, our ears, our sense organs, the surfaces through which we interface with the world around us. And what is neat about this is that uh, it makes sense of everything without postulating anything but the given, which is mind itself. And it doesn't incur in the possible problem of trying to wish mind out of existence, which, what, which is what materialists have to somehow do. Um, and they are even taken seriously in this attempt in academia, which reflects how deep uh, the paradigm goes, um, wishing the given out of existence. But anyway, um, dissociation is something in nature. We know it exists. We know it's there. We may not understand all the mechanisms conceptually, in all precision, There are gaps to be covered there in our conceptual understanding of dissociation. But whether we understand it conceptually or not, we know it happens because it happens within us as well. There is empirical, abundant empirical evidence to settle the question of existence. And that's all you need to explain everything in terms of one natural underlying extended mind of which we are just alters. The whole time you were talking,
0: I was just like, uh, let me reframe what you just said. Reality is one mind, one consciousness that has spun off, dissociated little alter mini egos. And there are a bunch of those and they each don't access directly or consciously either little alter egos maybe they're made of or bigger things that they're a part of, the universal mind. And when they experience the only thing that's real, which is more mind, other alters manifest as other organisms, animals, humans, living organisms. That's what an alter mind of the universal mind looks like to itself from an alter vantage point. So you and I are both, the universe is a, a one mind that has multiple personality disorder, and we won't even call it disorder. We'll say it's just, just it's just multiple personalities, and that's explains all of this.
1: Yeah, it's a disorder. Just for us, we passed a value judgment, and we called it a disorder. But I'm I'm I i am i do not think want I don't want to imply that uh, nature is sick. <laughs> no, nature is just nature. The value of judgments are things we pass That's on it. Right. Uh, it itself is just what it is. Uh, yes, and uh, look, the idea of unity, of oneness, uh, is an important one in analytic philosophy because it avoids all kinds of trouble. If you postulate more than one, what philosophers call uh, uh, um, ontological primitive, more than one self um, Standalone thing that exists, if you postulate more than one of them, you run into the interaction problem. You run into questions like, well, why are there then two if they are completely unrelated? It's like it's two miracles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do they interact if, if they are completely distinct? What's, ontologically? The, what's the space between them? What do their borders look like? Exactly. You, right, yeah. Exactly. So when you postulate multiplicity you run into very hard problems and that's why physics itself is also trying to drive to oneness and we call it unified field theories um m theory is the is the latest uh, unified field theory it's not worked out yet but science itself drives to that because it avoids all kinds of problems that seem to be insoluble so it's no surprise that i'm driving to that as well because It avoids, for instance, the combination problem in philosophy. Like, uh, if I postulate that my neurons are conscious, how do I explain my unitary consciousness? then the consciousnesses of my neurons would have to combine in some way, but it has been shown already already analytically that combination is incoherent, that you cannot uh, coherently postulate a a, a theory of combination, not to mention the fact that there is no empirical evidence for it either. So we avoid the hard problem of consciousness, we avoid the combination problem um, by starting from oneness and then explaining diversity through a process that, we know empirically to exist, which is dissociation. So the answers I think have been staring us in the face for quite a while, we just have to have the eyes to to see. So start start with one consciousness to avoid all those
0: ontologic primitive interactions that we don't like. Everything is one thing, then solve the problem of why I don't know your mind and you don't know mine by saying there's a dissociation, which we have evidence for already every time we dream, we create a, an altar that lives in a world that is bigger than us that we create. Uh, and then when we wake up, we come back to the universal mind that, exactly. that is there. So there's a mini version of that. And then you have the, the dissociative personality disorder, which we have examples that you can actually measure real blindness correlates in a brain when the altar is blind. But you then, so then you can say, okay, so this there's precedent for this in the world. So one thing, alters, then answer this question, why do us alters see the same general universe with the same laws and the same physics and the same interface, at least let's stick with our species. Why, why is that the same? If everything's mind, wouldn't it just be shifting like a dream all the time as the mind changes? What's going on?
1: Because we as alters are immersed in the same mental content. Um, and, and the way this external mental content looks like to us, um, and the way we gather information about it through our dissociative boundary, as given by evolution, presents this common outside mental environment as the inanimate world, as the stars and galaxies and moons and planets. It's what our common environment of mentation looks like when observed given the sensory organs that evolution has equipped us uh, with. So, yes, there is an objective world out there, but it's not essentially material. Matter is just what it looks like when observed from across our dissociative boundary. What it is in itself, it's mentation. But we are all inserted, immersed in these mental processes. And that's why we agree with each other that we are in the same world. We are, we, we are in the same world, indeed. It's a mental world, but we share it. So we're living in the
0: same dream of a dreamer that is vastly us and also bigger than us That's we've forgotten we're a part of.
1: And this, this, is, this is a metaphor, of course, um, but the metaphor is closer to reality than I dared imagine uh, in the beginning. Um, the research on dissociation is fascinating. I would encourage everybody to, to have a look at that. There is research done, I believe it was at Harvard, um, back in the 90s, I think. They've done research with patients of DID. I mean, again, we call it a disease. I don't mean to imply that it's a disease at a universal level. It's just nature. Um, dissociation happens in nature. But they studied uh, uh, people uh, suffering enough from the condition to be treated, and there was clinical research done in a large group of patients with DID. Clinical research done about their dreams. How do dissociated people dream? And a fascinating thing was that uh, about one quarter of the subjects, um, uh, for one quarter of the subjects, different of the different ones of their alters, would experience and report on the exact same dream from different points of view within the dream and alters could see each other as different characters within the dream wow so the dream was yeah the the common dream of that one person one mind but the different dissociative personalities would experience the dreams from different points of view and see each other as different people within the dream Um, and this is fascinating <laughs> because it's so close to what might be going on right now. You just have to take the subject as you know, the cosmos, the universe, and we as its dissociated alters partaking in the same dream and experiencing the same dream from different points of view. Yeah. Uh, the analogy is is super. Surprisingly uh, deep. Oh my god! Uh, I don't think it would need to be that deep to settle the questions, but that it goes that deep is is only nice, right? It, it, it's, it, it's it's quite remarkable. I mean, it
0: it makes you think of the fractal nature of reality. If there's one mind that dissociates into us, why can't we dissociate into sub minds? that can interact with each other in a dream that we create and then onwards and down with no end. You, we have no idea because you can't really explore it that well. And it makes me think of something, and this is gonna sound crazy, but you know when you look at a human brain and you look at neurons, they, they have this stellar appearance. They even call the stellate ganglion and it, it, the Latin root, they look like stars and they have certain things. When you look now increasingly at the universe through Hubble imagery and even new imagery that shows billions of galaxies, they are bound together by filaments of energy that you can now perceive with new technology and and science. So they're saying there's these superheated gases in between galaxies. When you zoom out and look at that, it looks like an effing brain. It looks like neurons <laughs> connecting to each other, and it makes me wonder. When we look at a human brain, we see a dissociated altar, and that's what it looks like to us from this vantage point. When we look out there, are we seeing a bigger mind that we are just a part of?
1: And I, it sounds crazy, but I mean, I don't know. yeah. It's, uh, look when when this was sort of reviewed for the first time back in 2006. I think there was a New York Times uh, article on this showing two pictures, uh, Mm. the brain of a mouse and the the superstructure of the universe as had just been inferred through simulations. Because, of course, we don't have a telescope that allows us to get an empirical photograph of of the universe at that level, but our computational models can give us the structure of the universe at its largest scales. And in that photograph comparison, there was a lot of similarity. But, of course, you always have to be very careful with image comparisons because, you know, you can always cut and stretch and crop and recolor an image in order to make any two things look alike. Mm. But what is significant about this? There there have been two studies now, one at the University of California and one done by an Italian physicist and an Italian neuroscientist who have been collaborating on this. The latest paper, paper I think was published, last year at Frontiers in Neuroscience, if I remember correctly. But they have done an information theoretical comparison. So here, they're not looking at images. They're looking at the topology of, of those structures. And there are very objective parameters um, that can serve as a basis for a comparison. And indeed, the topological structure of a nervous system, of a mammalian nervous system, is surprisingly and unjustifiably similar to the superstructure of the universe at its largest scales, especially when you bring the distribution of dark matter uh, into the picture, which we know is there, even though we don't know, we don't know what it is. Um, so, you cannot dis- one cannot dismiss that. We cannot say that, well, it's just one of those things. No, no, no. It, the similarity is is. Too great uh, for us to to, to just you know, dismiss it as a coincidence, and this is leading some scholars now to suggest that even our cosmological theories the the models we postulate should be judged on the basis of whether they are consistent with the <laughs> topological <laughs> structure of of a brain as a sort of litmus test uh. Uh, to, to see whether you know. So this is going far, and what's remarkable is that we are growing used to this idea since 2006. We are sort of getting settled into this fact that, okay, there is this similarity, even though nobody has a reasonable hypothesis to account for this similarity on materialistic terms. And it, it's just completely different laws coming into play at completely different scales, Ske- many, many, many orders of magnitude apart. Now, why does... Uh, uh, the center of a galaxy look more like uh, um, well, I, um, never mind I, uh, it, it, it would take too long to make the argument I was about <laughs> hey, <laughs> to try and We make. got all the time the, in the world. But. <laughs> the crucial point is at an information theoretical level the similarities are striking and the way I would go about it you know modestly is to say look if our inner mentation when observed from the outside, from across our dissociative boundary, for instance, with a brain scanner, if it looks like what we call a brain, the core of our mentation, you could consider the body, you know, just equipment we acquired in order to maintain the dissociation within our ecosystem. But the core of our mentation is our nervous system. If our nervous system has a certain topology, because that topology is what inner mentation looks like, and if the rest of the universe is also mental in nature, then I think it's pretty reasonable that the rest of the universe at its largest scales would have very similar topology. I don't think this is surprising at all. Both are representations or images of innermentation. So why should they be different? That's how nature behaves when it produces these representations. And these representations are are images of the same kind of thing. So of course, they look alike from an information theoretical level.
0: So, so basically, that was a beautiful way of saying, no, you're not crazy, Zubin, that that may actually be a thing. <laughs> so so it, uh, I, I hope the audience is starting to feel this understanding that the invoking idealism, which you, you've referenced several times, this idea that the universe is primarily mental, is very much simpler and more parsimonious and more consistent with what we observe than the materialist paradigm, which generates tons of errors and problems, tons of problems, like the hard problem of consciousness, what's going on with quantum mechanics, et cetera. And and actually, let's find an intermediate point because then the materialists will come back and say, well, okay, no, 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 we'll grant you that consciousness is unexplainable and it's in the, Pure material paradigm. But what about the panpsychist paradigm, which says material exists, but it has a property like spin, charge, mass, which are also abstractions by the way. Um, It has a property of consciousness. So an electron, there's something that it's like to be an electron. And somehow these things combine to form higher consciousness
1: that then can do math and play video games. How do you think about this? I have two main points of criticism about it. One is that nobody can give a coherent account of how this combination might happen. Actually, there are several papers published now um, which provide a rationale for why any idea of combination is fundamentally incoherent. For instance, if one of your neurons is seeing blue and the other is seeing red, uh, and then you say, well, the combination sees purple, but how can that be? Because one sees blue and the other sees red. So unless these two things that have been combined cease to exist and become a third, which is a magical step, you can't account for the combination. So there are there are all kinds of thought experiments that indicate that um, a combination of fundamentally different fields of subjectivity is always uh, uh, an incoherent idea. Um, and let's not even get into empirical evidence because there is none uh, for for this kind of stuff happening in nature. Unlike dissociation, for which there is plenty, plenty of, evidence. of empirical evidence that it does happen in nature. My other point uh, against panpsychism is that uh, it doesn't solve anything; it just avoids the need for a solution. Because you know, I, I am a naturalist and a reductionist, and you may say, "Well, these are prejudices." Maybe, but that's how that that's how I think. I want to drive to reduction as much as I can. I think the best theory of nature is that which explains everything in terms of only one thing and not a whole series of things. Um, When a panpsychist says that... uh, Matter really exists as matter with the boundaries we attribute to matter. So subatomic particles are the building blocks of nature, elementary subatomic particles. And then they say, well, but next to having mass, charge, spin, and so on, they also have this property that we call phenomenality. There is also something it is like to be that particle. So it's material, but it's also fundamentally mental. And that solves the problem because then mentality is is fundamental. It doesn't need to be explained. Well, I think this is a cheat. It's just throwing what you can't explain into your reduction base and saying, well, I accounted for it by saying that I don't need to explain it. I think it's a cheat. I don't, I don't <laughs> like this at all. I think it's not promising. I don't think it will lead anywhere. It's what Don Hoffman says uh, is
0: invoking a miracle late in your theory or invoking more than one miracle, right? Are, are the miracle in idealism is consciousness is. That's the only miracle you need to invoke. It starts right at the beginning of the the Mm series,
1: Indeed. And any theory of nature has to invoke one, quote, miracle. Because, you see, explanation is a reduction. So when you explain one complex thing in terms of simpler things, you're reducing one to the other. So we explain our... Organism in terms of organ systems, organ systems in terms of tissues, tissues in terms of cells, those in terms of molecules, atoms, so atomic particles. At some point, you hit rock bottom because you can't keep on explaining one thing in terms of another forever. Uh, you just, Unless you adopt circularity and infinite regress, which is a logical cheat, a logical fallacy, you have to stop somewhere. So the game is not to avoid all miracles. The game is to find that one miracle in terms of which you can explain everything else. Ah. Now, that one miracle is not a whole menu of elementary subatomic particles because if we choose those, we cannot explain experience in terms of those. Mm. But if we say, well, there is one consciousness, everything else are just patterns of excitation of this one consciousness, which is how you get multiplicity out of unity, how you get variety out of unity. You just... It's just like the surface of a lake. There is only one lake, but depending on the wind, that lake can produce ripples and vortices of different shapes, and you can have endless variety without having anything else other than the lake, because those patterns of excitation are just the lake in movement. There's nothing to a ripple but the water that ripples. The same thing for this one consciousness. The variety of empirical experience can be explained in terms of the patterns of excitation of that one field. If you want to speak, you know, abstract scientific theory, say, well, consciousness is the unified field, and you can account for the variety of natural phenomena in terms of, one, dissociation, and two, patterns of excitation of that one field. So if you do that, then you can explain everything in terms of one thing, which is the best you can hope to have. You cannot eliminate the last miracle. You cannot eliminate that last thing that you have to say, well, this simply exists. It's simply what nature is. (laughs) And we cannot go beyond that. That, That makes perfect sense. You need one
0: primitive truth. And if you can get to that rock basement, and build an entire world. As Don says, if you can spin up quantum mechanics and relativity and all our science from that one truth using a theory that incorporates that as the base theory, then you found an answer and you can test it and you can go on. And And so let's play a game then, Bernardo. Uh, in your, using this theory of idealism, that everything is fundamentally one consciousness that has dissociated and that it, every, phenomenon is a vibration of that consciousness. It's, a, it, it's made of consciousness. It's like you and I are both waves in an ocean. We're both the ocean and the wave. And this wave doesn't experience what that wave experiences. But when we dissolve, we might, and we'll talk about death because I think that's gonna be important. But So then answer me this, what the hell is a rock?
1: And how is it different than a dog? <laughs> I think a dog, is the appearance of an actual dissociative process in this extended field of mentation, if you will. So there is something it is like to be a dog in and of itself. It has a private inner life of its own because uh, it's the appearance of a dissociative process that creates a dissociative boundary and therefore leads to this private character of inner experience. Um, A rock, I don't think a rock or any inanimate object exists as a separate object at an ontological level. Let let me um, try to unpack this for you. Um, We divide or we carve out the inanimate world into separate objects for convenience because I want to buy a car and not a house. So I need to be able to identify what particular pattern of excitation of this extended mind I I, am interested in. So I nominally delineate a boundary around it and I put a label on it so we can talk to each other but I don't think ontologically there are such things as separate objects in the same way that if I show you a picture and I say, well, those pixels here I will group them together because I like their shade of blue and I will call that an object you would say, well, you can do that if you want but it's only nominal It's, it's an arbitrary carving out of the one photo The only thing that exists is the photo. Your pixel grouping is something you did for some convenience. Well, I think we are doing this all the time when we talk in terms of separate objects. I don't think there is a car. Even if you say, no, a car is that which you need in order to perform a certain function, like to move. Well, you quickly realize that there is no car if you define an object in this way, because the car will not move without a road that the tires can grip. It would not move if there is no air that allows for combustion and cools the engine. It would not move if there is no gravity to pull the tires towards the road in order for there to be grip. No, there is no car. We arbitrarily carve out boundaries in the one thing that's going on, which is the inanimate universe, merely for convenience. It's a nominal division. So, if you ask me, is a rock conscious, I would say there is even no such a thing as a rock. So the question doesn't make sense. I don't think a rock is conscious in the same sense that I don't think one neuron in my brain is conscious in and of itself. I think uh, the image of my inner life is my nervous system as a whole. Carving it out in terms of neurons is something we do for convenience, very important convenience. We should keep on doing that. Um, But it's not something that reflects a fundamental partition of reality um, a neuron is just a set of pixels in, in that image of my dissociated inner life, and a, a subset of pixels that I carve out for convenience um, in the same way I think my mobile phone uh, uh, is something that we carve out for convenience there's nothing it's like to be my mobile phone there's nothing it's like to be a rock there's only something it is like to be the inanimate universe as a whole Everything else are nominal, arbitrary partitions of the image, the appearance of that universal conscious their life.
0: That is a lot to understand, and I think I, I get at it. It's gonna take, I mean, you could go for hours trying to drill into what you're saying there because I think it answers a fundamental question when people say, well, everything is conscious, then why isn't a rock, what's it like to be a rock? And you're saying, when you say there is no rock, it's really, the way I interpret this, and I, I'm probably wrong, is that the rock is some experiential reality that we experience as rock. But it's, it's really, that, that's not really how, to, how
1: you think about it. There's, the, yeah, go ahead. You, don't even have, you never experience the rock in and of itself. There's always a context, and you arbitrarily carve out the rock mm. from that context. Look, we can make it very intuitive, Zubin. So think of a table. Suppose there is a panpsychist who says everything is conscious. That's not what an idealist says. What an idealist says is everything is in consciousness. Mm. Not that everything is conscious in and of itself. Mm. Because the idealist would even uh, reject the concept of thing (laughs) as as separate entities so for the idealist everything is in consciousness and exists by virtue of being a pattern of excitation of consciousness not your consciousness alone not mine alone but an extended field of mentality now the panpsychist who says every object is conscious faces immediate problems like okay you're saying the table is conscious right so what if i take one of the four legs of the table out
0: does it hurt then, the table? <laughs>
1: is that leg now conscious in and of itself, separate from the table? And then a the panpsychist might think and say, "Well, yeah." Then it's okay. What if I glue the leg back? No, and 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 then you, you run into these arbitrary things. Is the river conscious? Okay. So where does the consciousness of the river ends and that of the ocean begins? Um, if the mountain is conscious, and then a rock sort of gets shaken off by by an earthquake and tumbles down the mountain. Does that rock now become separate in consciousness from the, from the mountain? Is, does the mountain have one private inner life and the rock another? And if the rock settles at the bottom, still touches the mountain, are they now only one consciousness? You see, it, it, you run into all kinds of nonsense if you start from this premise that things are conscious fundamentally in and of themselves because our very notion of thinginess is nominal. It's arbitrary. <laughs> so, so, but you could. You are making the assertion
0: that living organisms, say a dog, has is is a sign to us. It's an experiential sign that there's a dissociative aspect of the one mind there that's looking out and has an inner experience. So, where do you end with that? Do you end with a virus? Do you
1: end with a cell? Do you end with a paramecium? How do you think about that? I think there is a gray boundary uh, in between cells and viruses. I personally but that's my my own prejudice my own intellectual disposition Um, for me what defines life or defines dissociation life is just the appearance of dissociation what defines it is what we call metabolism Mm. so protein folding atp burning all that good stuff that happens uh, in all life, and it's common to all life, regardless of the extreme distinctions between different organisms. I mean, I'm, I don't look like a mushroom, but we can drill down into a level where the mushroom and I are the same. We are both metabolizing, and that metabolism is surprisingly identical. I mean, you know better, better, better than I do. At the level of you no know, molecular biology, metabolism is the same across across uh, all living beings, and a virus doesn't metabolize by itself so my personal disposition is to put the boundary just above virus particles uh, so for me crystals uh, are not the image of dissociative processes in other words they are not alive viruses are not alive um, but of course nature is a continuum we try to establish this you know, sharp boundaries uh, because dissociation has to have a sharp boundary i mean if i pinch my skin i feel it if i pinch the leather of the chair where i'm sitting i don't feel it so ontologically dissociation has a sharp boundary but um, it can only be precisely pinned down from the inside Mm. what do i feel and what do i not feel i don't see a photon hitting on the wall but if it hits my retina i see it Um, from the outside it's much more tricky why because we didn't evolve capture everything that is salient about reality we evolved to capture what is relevant to our survival Mm -hmm. not capture everything that is salient to understanding the nature of reality we didn't evolve for uh, for that so um through perception through what we can see and measure it's difficult to pin down a precise boundary in nature because the images are not that sharp. There is a limiting resolution there. But my personal disposition to finally answer your question is to say it ends with metabolizing simple organisms. If you go down enough that you can no longer speak of standalone metabolism, then I don't think that reflects a dissociative process in nature anymore. So so the evolutionarily
0: conserved Active metabolism that goes all the way back to the you know the, the simplest cells. That's a that's and and you know what? At first I was skeptical of that distinction, and now it actually is starting to feel like it makes sense. You know, in the old days they didn't understand cells at all, and they said there was some Elan vital, some life force that makes life, and maybe it's as simple as that, and yet as complex because even that we don't fully understand, but. So, so that distinction is Now, the other thing, since we brought evolution into this, why the hell does this one mind seem to manifest a world with very specific rules that is resource constrained enough that we are forced to compete in a way that we evolve? What aspect of... Of, of your theory would explain that because it, all our natural constants are perfectly tuned for life and all of that but why do they even exist why are there rules if this is a mind why isn't there why isn't there just magic everywhere
1: um, I, I completely understand the intuition underlying uh, that question but i would invite you to to explore it from a different angle it's very tempting for people who are confronted with an idealism, not, not only analytic idealism, but idealism for the first time, to ask the question, why? Because we are mental beings and we are always asking for the reason, the motivation that underlies everything, since that's what drives our behavior. And we then sort of anthropocentrically transport that to the whole of the universe. Mm. But I would invite you to, to consider that for most living organisms on this planet, there is no why. That's not how they operate. Um, The question of why arose with metacognition. And arguably, we may be the only metacognitive animals around that think symbolically, that are able to objectify their own thoughts and experiences and have the thought, I am having this experience. I don't think my cat walks around going... I am having this experience now. I don't think my cat metacognizes. My cat experiences. And my cat reacts instinctively. You see, instinct always provides a clear, unique, and immediate answer to every natural circumstance. Animals who behave instinctively have predictable behavior. Crocodiles are very predictable. Um, We are not because we have evolved this ability to objectify our own subjectivity and to think about our own thoughts, think about our emotions, and then ponder and deliberate. Uh, this is a very human thing that has evolved after three and a half billion years uh, uh, of suffering and pain on this planet. It's not something that was there in the fabric of nature from the beginning. And therefore, I don't think it's something we can attribute to the field of mentation that is out there, because that field, uh, at at that broad level, didn't undergo the pressures of evolution in a a planetary ecosystem. Um, So, I, I don't see a reason to think that the field of mentation underlying nature at large uh, would have metacognition of or, or premeditation or plan things out or ponder what's the best way to go about things. And I think there is evidence that it's exactly not that. And I think there's plenty of evidence that it's instinctive because the laws of nature seem to be very stable, very predictable. We can model them and they reliably you know, unfold according to the same regularities since we've begun taking records. So, so nature at large seems to behave instinctively in the sense that it always has one immediate and precise answer to any set of circumstances. And that answer has regularities. And we call those regularities the laws of nature, which is, of course, a metaphor. It's not a law decreed by a god. It's just a reflection of what nature is. Nature can't help but being what it is and therefore behaving the way it behaves. And I think that behavior is instinctive. I don't see good reasons to project onto the rest of nature um, a cognitive, a higher cognitive capacity that we have evolved at great cost after three and a half billion years on this planet. So the one mind doesn't necessarily
0: think like a human. It doesn't doesn't necessarily have this metacognition where we're thinking about thinking, where we're aware of being aware, where we have a why that we impute uh, as part of our instantiation, more like, more like our cat, maybe that it has, or I'm probably simplifying this, but it, it's more that it just is what it is. It has a certain way of being. And why are we here? Because we're here. And it just, that manifests to us as these laws of nature, but it's a regularity, a predictability, et cetera. So you, correct me on that, but then also what's where is the space in that for free will in this model? Do humans actually have any component of that? And I know
1: that's a two hour talk in itself. Uh, I'll start from the conclusion, just to be provocative. I think the whole thing about free will is a red herring. Mm. And and the reason it's a red herring is that uh, our intuition about free will requires us to find some space in between determinism, things are just determined, and uh, randomness. Things are just random, they happen for no reason. So free will seems to require something in between randomness and determinism, but that space is semantically empty. There's nothing there. Things are either determined or they are random. And by the way, randomness is just the name we give when we don't understand the mechanisms of determination because you could argue, well, they are determined. It's just that we don't have the cognitive capacity to figure out what's going on when you throw a coin up uh, to uh, randomly see whether you get uh, uh, faces or, how is it in English, one side is faces, uh, the other side. Well, uh, heads and tails. Heads and, yeah. yeah, yeah. Heads and tails. So it, And it, it's random because we cannot compute the, the deterministic parameters that will ne- necessarily tell the coin which face will be up. Um, at the same time, if you go down deep enough Uh, in nature, and you go to the quantum level, then there nothing is determined. Uh, Things are determined only at a statistical level, but individual events are random. They're fully indetermined. So I think this idea of the the notion of free will to try to find semantic space that isn't randomness and isn't determinism is is futile. Um, I'll give you an alternative uh, view. What we actually mean by free will is when things are determined... But they are determined by that which I identify myself with, Mm. as opposed to an external force. So, if my going to work tomorrow is determined by the rules of my society and not by what I identify with, namely my will, then I am forced to work, as opposed to willing to work. So, the notion of free will and determinism depends on the idea of what is in, in other words, what I identify myself with, and what is out the external forces. But at the level of universal mentation, there is no in or out because there is nothing outside of it. So the universal mind will do what it does, both because it needs to do it by virtue of being what it is. It does what it does. Its actions are determined by its nature, by what it is. And and the, the following is equally true It does what it does because it wishes to do so. (laughs) The wish is the need, is the necessity. There is no distinction between the two if there is nothing outside to impose something from the outside. As Schopenhauer said, you know, we are free to act according to our will, but we are not free to will what we will. That's right. So in that sense, you, you know, what you think you want, you want it because of what you are. So your will, in a sense, conflates with determinism because you know, you're know you not free to will anything. You will what you do because you are what you are. And at the level of the universe, the necessity is the will. So if you ask me, is there free will in nature? I would say, yes, in all of nature. And that free will is the necessity. It is determined. There is no distinction between these two concepts. There is no semantic space uh, within which you could carve them out from one another. Mm. It's a red herring, the whole idea of free will. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll do, oh man, that's great. We will do another show on this because I wanna talk about objective chance and so on. And, and uh, but but wow. Okay, so now, because I, I will run out of recording card at some point, uh, I wanna get to, and we'll just have to do another show to get into more into the weeds and some of this stuff, because this is fascinating. Um, so death, death of a human being, birth of a human being, what, how do you conceptualize that? And I know sometimes it can be beyond concept, but how do you conceptualize that in an idealistic framework uh, such as you're proposing?
1: If life is what dissociation looks like when observed from across its dissociative boundary, then death is necessarily the end of the dissociation. What we call death is what the end of that dissociation looks like. Um, what should it feel like from within? Well, if dissociation constrains your field of subjectivity, your field of experiences, then the end of this dissociation just enlarges it. So to put it in a maybe poetic way, Mm. (laughs) who am I to to, to put it poetically? But I know it will sound a little bit poetic, which I tend to guard against, but I have no better descriptive way to put it. Um, Life is when you observe the world. Death is when you become the world. Ah. What is accessible to you only through representation becomes accessible now to you directly. So now you're not knowing the world by looking at it. Now you're knowing the world by being in it. Because you can only access the thing in itself by being in it. Uh, So if the dissociation ends, you no longer have the dissociative boundary or the screen of perception to become acquainted with the world indirectly through representation. Now you become the world. So I think when we die, we become the universe. And I think, although our individual self will cease to exist, because individuality is directly tied to dissociation, uh, so our individual self will probably cease to exist, I don't think we will regret it any more than we regret and mourn the death of our dream avatar when we wake up. Um, it's only from the perspective of those in the dream, those that are still in the dream, that there is a great loss. I think from the first person perspective, I don't think you will register that as a loss at all, on the contrary.
0: So I've thought about this a fair bit. And, you know, psychedelics will simulate this for you too. Um, Ego death and ego. So when we think about ego, I like to think of it, you know, and I, 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 you know, meditation is a part of my life and this sort of path has been, but when I think about ego, I think about in, the, in your model, I think about a dissociative internal uh, uh, process of discursive thought that creates a sense of I that reifies the boundaries between I and the rest of the world that is defended, that has its own personality and habit energy and habit pattern and that, Meditation is a way to look at it, to watch it, and to realize it's in you. It is not necessarily you, right? You're the awareness in which it arises. But the ego exists for a reason in this resource-constrained world, which we don't know why it's resource-constrained, and as you say, the question may not even be relevant because only humans ask the question. Um, The ego's designed to keep us safe, to protect us, and to reify this organism as all there is. So when it is threatened, it generates a kind of defense and a suffering that is legendary. So, ego death during psychedelics feels like you're dying over an eternal time frame. And when you're released from the ego and join this sense of unitary consciousness, which mystics report it, psychedelic users report it, people have had peak experiences. They report it randomly. Um, it's it's a deep bliss and release. And I wonder whether. Physical death is very similar in how it's
1: experienced. Well, uh, physiologically, the best model of death we have is the psychedelic experience, because we know that uh, it significantly reduces brain activity, particularly in the default mode network, which is associated with the narrative of personal self and the ego that you are describing. Um, activity in in, in in that network is significantly reduced. Well, activity is reduced everywhere. It doesn't increase anywhere. But particularly in the default mode network, which which is the network that gives us our sense of individual self. So. Physiologically, psychedelics are the best model of death we have because it seems to uh, um, reduce the dissociation. You see, if normal brain activity is what dissociation looks like, then some forms of reduction of brain activity should correlate with the reduction of the dissociation, Ah. right? The logic is pretty clear. Again, it's not only your anatomy, but it's also... The, the ordinary patterns of brain activity we have that are the the appearance, the image of a dissociative process. So it stands to reason that uh, a reduction, certain reductions of brain activity, not necessarily all, some of them can just reduce the contents within the dissociation, the experiences within, but some patterns of brain activity reduction should be what a a reduction in the dissociation process itself looks like. So some reductions in brain activity should impair the dissociative process itself, should make the dissociative boundary more porous, more permeable. And I think that's exactly what psychedelics do. They impair the dissociative mechanism, so you become less dissociated. And that's why there is ego death. I think it stands to reason that that's a very good model of actual Death, because in actual death, that's precisely what's going to happen. Your this, your, your default mode network goes dark and uh, activity ceases and dissociation reduces. So I, I take very seriously ego dissolution as the best guess we can have um, to 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 what death uh, will feel like. And from that perspective, I think it's it's a great rehearsal because psychonauts know that if you don't resist ego dissolution, if you just let go, which is very easy, very to, easy say to say very, very, hard hard to do. Do. Yeah, very hard to do. Yeah, <laughs> very hard to do. But you can get to a point where that's natural. Um, I, I've, you know, I considered psychedelic experiences as part of my research. I think I wouldn't be serious if I would go talk about these things without undergoing those experiences myself. So mm-hmm. I've done that with based on a lot of study. I went to my doctor. I was checked out before I did it. I live in a country in which it's legal. Mm-hmm. So I had all these benefits, so I did it very thoroughly. And uh, you do get to a point where ego dissolution now is its you ride it out with pleasure. Because if you've gone through the path enough times that you know that what is awaiting on the other side is pretty good, if only you let go. Um, what is hard is to come back, which uh, I call re-entry, when the dissociative mechanism reasserts itself and the entire concept of space and time come back, because space and time are cognitive modalities that we've evolved to survive. Um, they are not out there. Now, even neuroscience, even physics itself is telling us that space and time are not absolute. Not fundamental, yeah. Um, no. When they reassert themselves and the idea of restriction comes back, that, that's massively unpleasant. <laughs> and it is the reason I don't trip anymore, to be very honest with you, yeah, uh, Zubin. Yeah. I, 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 ego dissolution, I ride that wave now, now I'm doing a hang loose, <laughs> but re-entry, coming back? Oh, oh man, I, and I feel so bad about life afterwards for 48 hours that I, I don't do it anymore. I, I believe you. And, and I'll
0: say even, so they, they've looked at fMRIs of monks, you know, uh, meditating, and it's the same thing, quieting of the brain quieting of brain activity. And they will report, oh, a sense of loving compassion for everything, because they are everything. And when, what is love? Love is a deep connection to something else. There's no deeper connection than being something else, which I think you can get through psychedelics, you can get through meditation, you can get through prayer, whatever it is, whatever your m- modality is, I think it points to the truth that you're saying if we're getting just more f- you know, s- philosophical and less scientific about it. But I, but I think that, um, I think this idea of ego dissolution being painful, but then getting used to it, but then ego re-entry never feeling good is fascinating because it implies something very positive, which is the the all, the, that, the, the, the universal mind, being back in that is blissful, is peaceful. It is a different experience. And that should, in many who've experienced with psychedelics, experienced with meditation, they don't fear death in the way that the contracted ego mind does where it's like, this is it, annihilation, I'm done, I'm terrified. It's more like, yeah, it's gonna suck uh, the process of it, but then it's gonna be awesome. And there's really no fear, yeah.
1: But, but don't get me wrong, I, I, I don't dismiss the value of life on the contrary. And let me tell you why, it's also an implication of the ideas I put forward that um, we are the only metacognitive part of nature. So we are the only way nature has to take explicit account of itself and to recognize itself. And three and a half billion years of suffering were invested into coming to this point. Whether it was planned or not is is a, is a moot point. It, it's immaterial. The the fact is we've developed this this higher level cognitive ability. And I think we are the only game in town. As far as we know, we are the only game in town. We are the only... Part of the universe that can look around and say, "This is happening, and we are a part of it," and I think this is this is huge. Um, I, I we pay a, a, an enormous price for it. We, we call it suffering. Because non-metacognitive beings have physical pain, but they don't suffer. They don't walk around regretting the past and being anxious about the future. They are always in the present. So we suffer because we are metacognitive beings that can identify themselves as individual subjects separate from the rest. But it is also by virtue of this that there is self-awareness anywhere in nature. Uh, And there ought to be value in that explicit recognition, that explicit taking into account of existence. There is a sense in which existence only really exists when it's explicitly recognized as such at a metacognitive level. So from that perspective, to speaking religious metaphors, I think we are God's spies. Uh, God does not know what we know, at least not in the way we do know it at a metacognitive sense. And amazing energy, time, and suffering have been spent into this. I don't dismiss it. So... uh, I don't want to get across as saying that, you know what, it's much better when we are dead. <laughs> so let's all pull the plug now. Right, no, yeah. no, Quite yes, the there is tremendous suffering involved, but there is tremendous value too, for all we know.
0: That, that was beautifully put. I, I really want to emphasize what you just said, because, you know, the Buddhists have a saying that like, you know, being born as a human is the greatest of the gifts because you have this ability of consciousness to know itself in a metacognitive, meta-aware way. And again, we'll put a value on it and go, well, consciousness did all this so it could know itself because that's what humans do. They'll put their humanized, anthropomorphized spin on it. You were gonna say something? Well,
1: well, well you know, th- there, there is room for telos, for, for a goal, even without metacognition, because you see, um, a metacognitive goal is a pull from the front. You already know where you want to be, so you pull from the front. But there is a push from behind as well. You're going somewhere, not because you know where you want to go, but because at every point in the way, you know whether you're getting colder or warmer. You know whether you're feeling better or worse. So there can still be a telos. There can still be an attractor that doesn't attract. Actually, it's just a push from behind and things... Look as though there were there was there were an attractor from the front, but everything is pushed from behind. It's still progressing towards a goal, like the game of you no, know, you're getting warmer or you're getting colder. You can still steer from behind. This might be going on.
0: I love that. I love it. I mean, the telos. So, to define telos
1: for folks because there there may be um... telos would be uh, um, the final cause. You know, the thing you live for, the thing nature is unfolding towards mm. uh, that, that, that ultimate end goal, the end game. What are we trying to get from all this? What do we need to do in order to get there? That would be the telos. Uh, and nature is teleological if it is moving towards the telos. But that can happen by a push from behind. In other words, we are instinctively feeling our way towards the telos, but there is no part of nature that knows exactly where it is. We are just feeling our way towards that. Or it can be a pull from the front. There is some God sitting on a throne in the sky that knows exactly where we want to go, and will sort of massage us towards that. I don't think the latter is what's going on, but I think nature, through us, is feeling its way towards the telos, yeah. So this is fascinating. To me, because
0: it, 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 again, the meaning of the universe, the reason we're all here, da, 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 all the big questions. You just say, well, <laughs> consciousness is, or the universal mind is, and it is the way it is. And as a result of how it is, it is unfolding in a way that finds its way towards an end that is is—is the result of what it is. Not that there's somebody there going, we want to go here. It's just, this is who I am. Yes. And this is me in the world, which is, how I like to think about human authenticity, if we're looking at the fractal nature of reality, humans are little mini versions of the of the all. When we're authentic to who we are, when we wake up, when we stop trying to be someone we're not, when we stop listening to the discursive voice that is, that is negative self-talk and all that, we show up in the world in a way that feels right. And almost invariably, we're more successful, we're happier, even, it doesn't have to be money, We're happier and we're more connected. And I think that uh, that is a nice push from behind. Instead of trying to set these arbitrary, oh, I want to be rich and I want to do that. Who am I? How do I show up in the world? And it just unfolds.
1: So I think that's a- Yeah, it's It's the distinction between your adaptive self that follows the recipes of society and your natural self that knows whether you're getting happier or not. Ah. And I'll tell you in healthcare, There are many people trapped in a world
0: where they are living somebody else's societal adaptive story, and they're not living their own story. And in that tension, I think there's a lot of what we call burnout, which is really kind of a victim-shaming thing, like you're know, you not resilient enough. Yeah, yeah.
1: Most people don't even know there is a natural self. They are completely identified with their adaptive self. The problem is that the adaptive self, although it's important in the first half of your life until you carve out a space in the world for yourself, after that, it's not adaptive anymore. It becomes maladaptive because it starts convincing you that everything is for no reason, everything is meaningless, and nothing makes you happy, and there's nowhere to go. Um, and that's the point where you have to jump back to your natural self, but most people don't even know it exists. <laughs> so it
0: is uh, <laughs> you know, you're describing the middle age crisis. You're describing yeah, Maslow's yeah.
1: hierarchy. You're
0: describing this fact that you do have to go through that adaptive phase. You go to medical school, you go to computer science, get your PhD, get your PhD in philosophy. You argue, you're a firebrand in the world, Uh, me versus the world, what's my place, what do I mean? Then you accomplish what you think you wanted and then you start to feel this weird emptiness that, wait, what? Yes. Why am I not happy? And
1: then... Exactly. And then... You... The, the game has to change, but we don't know how to play the game differently. So we get stuck. And, 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 and that's trouble. That's trouble. You see, the, the, the natural self is more or less your instinctive self. Mm. Um, it, it's not busy creating narratives. It just knows what feels right and what mm. doesn't feel right. But the adaptive self with its narratives has become so dominant that we don't fall back to our natural instinctive selves. I mean, we are parts of nature, right? Nature is going somewhere. Deliberately or not, it's going Mm. somewhere. And it's going somewhere through us, partly. Um, So there is something that wants to come into the world naturally through us or or something that needs to be absorbed from the world by us. And that's all nature. That's all instinctive. It, It doesn't come as a result of a narrative or an argument line. Um, but we don't listen to nature anymore even though we are it. We are nature. Uh, we are lost in abstractions. We are lost in abstractions in our psychology, in our view of the meaning of life, in our science, in our philosophy. are completely lost in abstractions. And I, I think that will be the theme of the 21st century. Uh, our painful emergence from the cocoon of abstraction. Ah, uh,
0: That is the perfect way to wrap up this in a nice package materialism as a vestige of that sort of failure and awakening from that yep. to the new paradigm and then looking at, at at coming back to that natural state and again none of this is woo woo this is exactly as we've built the case over 2 hours and and I'll say this you know one thing about that authenticity and 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 getting out of the narrative mind that's why I love doing live video on Facebook or whatever when I'm talking about a topic. It comes from what I feel is a hole. I open a hole in the universe and stuff comes out. Sometimes it's not perfect, but it's always as authentic to that moment as I can be. And um, for me, that's been a that's been a journey to get to that point where I'm comfortable doing that. And I think uh, I encourage people to try to explore. More natural expressions of who they are, and it sounds like oh, it's a little soft, and I don't get it. It's going to sound like that to someone who's deep in the adaptive game, right? But as as you wake up, you'll 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 find joy in it.
1: Most people, when they suffer enough, they they see through it. Um, unfortunately, it takes a lot of suffering, suffering for most people to to let go of the narratives. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Man, Bernardo, what a. Uh... What a joy it was talking to you. I I, I learned so much, and uh, this is stuff that I. Who so did I, man? Oh, no, I don't. I'm 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 like a country doc, man. You're you're. This is will. Okay. Will you? I, this is going to get five views because there's like five people in the world who love this stuff as as much as as uh, you and I do. But I, I suspect it'll be more than that. Will you come back and go deeper on some of these things uh, sometime soon? Sure.
1: Sure, it's my natural self. To do this. <laughs> Exactly.
0: Exactly. You always have my forum uh, because I, I I bet we're going to get a ton of questions in the comments and and objections and things. And I'd love to just go through comments and say hey, let's let's talk about this because I'll learn a lot. Let's do it again, man. What a joy. Um, let me um, let me tell the gang here, guys. I mean, <sighs> right? I hope you're thinking about stuff in a metacognitive way, but also relaxing into what is and feeling what we're trying to say here. Um, if you like this show, share it, leave a comment, tell us what bothers you about this, what you agree with, what your own experience is. And then we'll do a follow-up where we take some of those comments and respond to them. Um, if you really like what we do, become a supporter, join our supporter tribe. Just go to ZDougMD.com forward slash supporters. And we go deep on these things like every night in a live authentic show that where we are our natural selves, ask the supporters, they'll tell you. All right, guys, I love you. Bernardo, thanks a million, man. Thanks for having me. It was a great pleasure. And we are out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. (laughs) And so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe.